So thank you for the invitation. And thank you for agreeing to rearrange the schedule a bit. Also to Deacon Mark for agreeing to that. So I, I have to be back in Dubuque this afternoon. So rather than have the afternoon talk, we, we switched. So I appreciate that. Um, let's begin with a prayer. And how about if we sing our prayer? I would imagine most people know at least the first verse of Holy God, we praise thy name. Anybody heard of that one before? <laughs> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy God, we praise thy name, Lord of all, bow before thee, all on earth scepter claim, all in heaven above adore thee, infinite thy vast domain. sure that my talk will take from now until 10:15. I don't really time them out, uh, but if there is time at the end, if anybody has a question about anything that I might say or a comment or, or a criticism, if it's a criticism, be gentle. I'm a delicate flower. I, I don't take criticism well. As was mentioned, and as you can see from the, the schedule for today, the, uh, the theme is evangelizing the family. And when I was given that theme, I said, well, that's pretty broad. You know? <laughs> um, and I thought of my mom, who is a great cook, she loves to cook, but she said the most difficult thing is figuring out what to cook. Well, nods, yes, mm -hmm. so it's not just my mom, I guess. And sometimes I think of that, or that's the approach that I take with regard to giving talks. I don't mind giving talks, but sometimes it's hard to figure out, well, what? And so I asked the organizers for a menu <laughs> for my offerings. And the first menu item that was given to me is entitled, How Do We Form Families of Faith from Baptism to Confirmation? There are a lot of different ways to cook that topic. And I want to make 
clear, first of all, that uh, you know, with regard to faith formation, while baptism is the beginning of that process, please do not leave here today thinking that confirmation is the end. In fact, you could probably just look around. You know, most of us, I think, have been confirmed. I saw a couple infants, so maybe they would be the exception. Uh, but most of us have been confirmed, and I was confirmed when I was nine years old, so that's been a few years ago. But faith formation is ongoing ongoing until we breathe our last. And so here we are today. As I said, there's a lot of different ways to cook this topic. How do we form families of faith from baptism onwards? You could talk about the role of parents and grandparents and great-grandparents as the educators of their children. And how any other program, whether it's a Catholic school or an RE program or a CYO or whatever they might call you know, youth ministry for, for high schoolers, those only serve to help parents but, but never take the place of parents or grandparents. Uh, you know, sometimes you know, pastors or catechists, they'll lament the fact that sometimes parents take the same approach to the religious education of their family <clears throat> as people do if their clothes catch on fire. You know the, the advice given when your clothes catch on fire, stop, drop, and roll. And that parents sometimes take that same approach to the religious education of their children. They stop at the church, you know, drop off their kids, and roll away until it's time <laughs> to come and pick them up again. So that's one way to approach this topic, but that's not the one I'm going to take. We could talk about various programs, classes, books, whatever, um, that are used in order to form families of faith from baptism onwards. Books, programs, classes, they're good instruments for faith formation. But it is not uncommon to hear from pastors or from parents about, to hear from them about the competition, the, the great competition for time or energy, the time and energy of, of kids, you know, to be involved in, in anything with church or, you know, faith formation programs or classes. So much time, so much competition. Or parents and sometimes grandparents will talk about the battle that they have to engage in to get their kids to a program or a class, whether it's on a weekday evening or on, on a weekend. And as a, 
a pastor can, can tell you, you know, our resources in a parish, financial resources or human resources, the resources needed to have these programs and classes, they're limited. And you have to be selective and sometimes use a criterion like, well, that program or that class doesn't garner a lot of attention or large attendance, so maybe we won't do that anymore. So it's always a challenge. By the way, you're to be commended for being here today. Even if you don't have air conditioning at home and you figure this is a nice, cool place to be. <laughs> you're to be commended for being here and for you know, the, the primacy you give to your faith and the desire to, to deepen that. But I would say that you are the exception in so many ways, but not the rule. When I was thinking about this, uh, just recently we had, the bishops had a meeting in the first part of June, and there was mention of, of an event that took place sometime earlier this year, I can't remember the exact date, but it was this national call-in day, you know, where Catholics throughout the nation were asked to call in toll-free uh, to their representatives in Washington about, you know, dreamers and, you know, these uh, young people that were brought here as, as little infants, you know, or young children by their parents from another country, and this is the only country that they know, and there was some threat that, that they would be deported. Okay, you know, and, and I you know, put something on the website and in the witness and sent out a thing to all the pastors to encourage everyone, just flood the Capitol with calls or emails on this particular day. Um, I called and you know, it, there was a backup and so instead I sent an email. But they were, um, the organizers among the bishops were touting the fact, woohoo, 50,000 people called in. That's not even half the Catholics in the Archdiocese of Dubuque. Well, granted, you know, maybe some people have political notions that, yeah, yeah, I don't really care about that, or, or maybe they didn't have the time or couldn't figure out the, but in our whole country, and I, I don't know the Catholic population, but 50,000, that's more embarrassing rather than something to go woo-hoo about. So, I'm really grateful that you're here, but gosh, shouldn't we have had this, I don't know what the largest venue is in Cedar Rapids, you know, some football field, I guess, you know. So, I'm glad that you're here, but this is a, as an example, well, there's a lot of competition. And, you know, sometimes it's a battle. And, and sometimes, you know, we just can't get it all put together. And so, what I'm going to propose is that 
when thinking about ongoing faith formation, deepening the, the, the level of our faith, the appreciation for our faith, that we don't think of programs, classes, books, as the only way that this can happen. And I would even say they're not even the best way. All apologies to CEO and its organizers. This is good, but it is not the best way for ongoing faith formation, whether it's of ourselves or also for children or grandchildren or, or whomever. I would say that there are better ways, better ways that are essentially related to the practice of our faith. If you're practicing your faith even in the most minimal way, these are ways that are already there. And that there are ways that are at the disposal of individuals. An individual, an individual family, without having to go to a church or sit in a class or to have a book or a, you know, a laptop or, or what have you. For example, what I consider to be the first and the best means for ongoing faith formation from baptism onwards is our celebration of Holy Mass. The Second Vatican Council, in the document on the liturgy, refers to our celebration of Holy Mass, especially Sunday Mass, this is the indispensable source of the true Christian spirit. That's a very strong statement. Indispensable, true Christian spirit. And, and that fact, and it is a fact, is really what prompted or promoted the whole reform of the liturgy so that its richness could be open and accessible to all. This past week I had a meeting with a, uh, leaders of a group in the city of Dubuque. They're, they're also uh, promoters of perpetual adoration. It's called Power of Prayer. If you've been to Dubuque, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, but the, I don't know what he is, the chairman of the board, I guess, um, was talking about his younger years, because he's my age or older, when the Mass was in Latin, and he said we would go, I didn't understand anything we were doing. So while it might be nostalgic to go, it's much richer now that I can hear and understand and it can enter my mind and get rooted in my heart and be expressed in action. The indispensable source of the true Christian spirit. And so it's important, importance not even 
an adequate word, it's important that this be the best spiritual experience that we can possibly make it. Now, you've been to Mass before? Anybody? <laughs> Not even Father Kent? Okay, one, yeah. <laughs> two people, all right. Well, they'll tell you, you go to Mass, and in the, the preface, the prayer right before the Eucharistic prayer, the priest always says, it is right. It is just, it is our duty and our salvation to offer worship. That's principally the reason why we gather, to offer due worship to God. Due worship that comes from that gift of the Holy Spirit, fear of the Lord. Due worship that is an expression of one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, piety. Do worship, but it is also for the purpose of being instructive and formative for everyone in the congregation, to instruct our minds to form our hearts. In my own reflection, just by being present and participating, you know, doing standing, sitting, saying this prayer or that prayer, there are parts of the true Christian spirit that become imbued in us. Take for example, you know, our need for God. You know, the, the fundamental reason that we are there is to offer worship to God. I need to offer worship to God. I recognize that there is something more than me, than here, than now. There is God and eternity, and this act is, is, a, is a response to that belief, is an expression of that belief. So going to Mass expresses our need for God, deepens, strengthens that sense of need. It also expresses and deepens our need for other people. Sometimes it happens, you, you might sit next to somebody at Mass in church who really does not want to, does not want to see you, talk to you, touch you, you know, just leave me alone, I'm here for Mass and not for you. That's not the true Christian spirit. Uh, because Jesus himself taught us that it's where two or three are gathered. There he is in their midst. Among the Jewish people, they had to have, I think it's ten adult believers gathered together in order for their worship to take place. Jesus took it easy on us, just ask for two or three. But we need other people. If for nothing else, we need other people in order to offer worship, to have the context for worship. Humility. Some of you may be married. All of us 
have friendships or relationships of one kind or another, and all of us are plugged into a relationship with God, and the one thing that all three of those relationships, or any relationships it requires, is humility. I'm not all that. You are. St. Paul, in one of his epistles, I can't remember which one, he says, he, he gives this advice, you think of others as greater than yourself. Now, who could be greater than you? But that's an expression of humility for you to take the mindset that others are, even when they're not, you know? And so every time we, we begin Holy Mass, it is to stamp that humility in our hearts. You, you remember this part? Well, at least the two of you remember that have been to Mass before. <laughs> the priest says, let us acknowledge our sins. And the last part of that sentence is very important. And so, by acknowledging our sins, prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. This is not kind of a, a mini sacrament of reconciliation. You know, call to mind your venial sins and then the priest is going to forgive them. Uh, it's not even asking God, I acknowledge my sins, so please forgive me. No, no, acknowledge your sins. Acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate sacred mysteries. The acknowledgement is, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I am not deserving of God's grace, God's mercy, but I am the recipient of a superabundant grace and mercy from God, which is what? Meant to inspire you to say, wow. Which we then say in so many words when we recite or sing the Gloria. The Gloria translated into contemporary language, would have us stand there, turn our minds and hearts to God and say, wow. It could be much shorter that way. <laughs> the word glory is a translation from the original Hebrew kavod which translates as immensity or obesity, big, huge, or huge. <laughs> it's to be, be before something, someone in this case, that is so immense, so weighty, so huge, that you can't but respond, wow. And that is the attitude of worship, the humility required for worship. I 
am a sinner in need of a savior. I do not deserve God's grace and mercy. And yet I am a super abundant recipient of these gifts and graces. Glory. Wow. Dude. You know, however you want to translate that. <laughs> Attending mass, participating in mass, is instructs us and forms us, deepens us in our need to be instructed, directed. The word disciple, which all of us are, if we're followers of Jesus, is a Greek word which means one who learns. Not just from baptism to confirmation, but all life long. One who learns. And there we sit. Even the attitude, the posture, to sit. It is the posture of a student. Whether one sits at a desk or you sit at the feet of the master to learn. And we sit and we learn from scriptures and from the homily and are directed by it. Participating in Mass reminds us that the companion to take is what? To give. One of the oldest terms or ways of referring to Holy Mass is the holy exchange of gifts. Used to be, at one point in the history of our church, that if you were not baptized, you could not put a gift or bring a gift at the collection. Whether it's money, as we do now, or you know, at, at one point, you know, you would bring oil or wine or chickens or whatever you had at hand. If you were not baptized, and so you could therefore not receive Holy Communion, you were not supposed to give a gift. But there was also the rule, if you did not give a gift, independent of the state of your soul, if you did not give a gift, then you could not come up and receive. Because this is the holy exchange of gifts. The companion to take is to give. Last, and oh, I, I think there's perhaps a, a really, 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 really long list of ways that we are instructed and formed by our participation in Holy Mass is our need to be nourished to live, whether it's water or coffee or donuts or ho-hos or Twinkies or smoked brats and hot dogs and potato salad. We need to be nourished in order to live, and it's certainly no different with regard to our spiritual life, at baptism, we receive life in Christ. I have no life now but Christ who lives in me, says St. Paul. But that life has to be nourished. And the nourishment is provided in that food of the Eucharist, about which Jesus says, 
if you do not eat this food and drink this cup, you have no life in you. Pretty important. But the Mass is even more instructive and formative when it is done well. I used to teach high school for a number of years and invariably my students would comment about some of their other teachers, never about me. <laughs> it's boring. They would never say that about my class if they wanted to live until the bell. <laughs> and I would say to them, if you're bored, you're boring. If you're bored in a class, that means you didn't prepare, you're not listening, you're not thinking of questions or comments or what have you, you're not engaged. And sometimes it happens, people come to Mass and their comment about it is that it is boring. And this is not just a comment that a, a teenager, for example, might make. I remember last year, year before, I was at Dyersville at the Basilica for confirmation. And when I'm preaching, I kind of walk around, especially to, to get in the face of, of the candidates for confirmation. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, there was a gentleman seated in one of the side aisles. On the aisle, so that it's hard to miss, but he was reading the newspaper. <laughs> now, that's okay. You know, I'm not saying that I'm that interesting to listen to. But you're reading the newspaper during the celebration of Holy Mass? He was obviously bored. But without even knowing who he is, he is obviously boring. He did not even make the attempt to prepare himself, to, to listen, to, to think, maybe questions or comments that he could pose to somebody afterwards. If you're bored, you're boring. And so it's certainly the role of a celebrant to be concerned about, well, how can we make this celebration of Holy Mass, how can we celebrate it well so that it's even more instructive and more formative, but it's not just the responsibility of the priest. All of us need to plug in, to sing, listen to the readings and the homily, give something in the collection, I was at a confirmation someplace else, not here. And I think myself and the song leader, we were the only ones singing. So after the opening solo, <laughs> I said, praise God, there is already evidence that the Holy Spirit is present and active and is working wonders in our midst.
Just for example, these candidates up front singing the opening hymn without even having to read from a hymn book and without even having to open their mouths. <laughs> One of our mission priorities in the Archdiocese of Dubuque is to enhance the experience of the Sunday Assembly at Holy Mass. And I propose that that is done by attention given to what I call the four H's. Attention to hospitality, attention to hymns, attention to the homily, and attention to how to worship. You know, these are concerns for all of us. Again, not just the pastor. And, and in your parish, you might have hospitality ministers, people who stand at the door, open the door, greet you, show you where the bathroom is, give you a bulletin or a newspaper to read during the homily or something like that. But it's also the people in the pews to be hospitable, to be warm, to be inviting. I'm happy that you're here. You know, there's this practice at the time of Holy Communion that young ones who are not yet of the age of receiving Holy Communion or visitors of one kind or another, and they develop a practice where they come up and cross their arms and in most places, you know, the, the priest or the deacon or the Eucharistic minister, they have kind of an elaborate blessing and put their hands on their heads and all that. I don't. I just lean forward and say, thank you for being here. God bless you. This is a procession to receive Holy Communion. I'm going to give a blessing in just a few minutes afterwards but to say, I'm happy that you're here. God bless you. A sense of hospitality, being inviting and warm towards everyone. Hymns, okay, you've got people who play pianos, organs, strum a guitar, or you know, who are song leaders, but, but all of us. My dad, he sang like a frog. But he sang every single time. It was a source of embarrassment, but this is the voice that God gave me, so he's going to have to listen to it. The homily, okay, the preacher's the one who's got to put forth the effort to put something together and deliver it in a, in a way that is engaging. But I don't care who the homilist is. If we sit and we listen, I'm going to get at least one thing out of this. And the one thing that we get out of it might be deepening, you know, the practice of the virtue of patience. I endured this. <laughs> you got something out of it. And how to worship. It's important for not only the priest or others who are, you know, have some kind of liturgical role, 
to do their job well, but for all of us to know how to worship. My parents, they took us to Mass every Sunday, at least when I was young, before I had a driver's license. But there was never an explanation as to why we do this. My dad was in the military. One of the bases that we lived at, there was no base chapel, so we had mass in the movie theater. We would come in, you know, my dad would genuflect, and we would go into this row of movie theater seats. I was a year away from entering seminary before I, I learned why we do that. There's no tabernacle in the movie theater. So there was, it, it, it is an act of adoration of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament to genuflect. Comes from the Latin flectus your genus, to bend your knee. It's an act of adoration to Jesus present in the Eucharist. I thought that it was the day, that, the way that my dad would show us what row we're going to sit in. <laughs> and there are so many things. You just think about it. You know, we stand, we sit, we kneel. I bet you a lot of folks don't know why. We make different gestures with our hands. We say certain words, we have, oh, he's wearing green today and red yesterday and... How to worship. It's why I wrote a catechetical series. Maybe some of you saw it. Uh, it was, it's, it's still on the, on the diocesan website and it was, as it was going on, <coughs> excuse me, it was uh, printed in, in the witness, just a little blurb each time to talk about why do we sit, why do we stand, why do we say glory, whoa, dude, how to worship. Thinking that maybe if we understood the how, it would then become an expression of something that's inside of us, instead of just something that we do because that's what we do. You know, this is a, it's a real challenge. Um, if, you know, any priest could tell you, deacons too, because you have to follow the liturgy, the liturgical books. But in, in normal conversation, what happens? You know, we get an idea in our head of what we want to communicate. And then, you know, without much thought, you know, we, we start to, okay, I'm going to use these words and I'm going to put them together in this way. And I'm going to say them while I'm standing or while I'm sitting. And who knows why my hands do this while I'm talking. But that's how we communicate. That what comes out of our mouth and our posture and gestures are expressions of things that we believe in, we're convinced about, we're passionate about. But then the church comes and says, here, here are the words that you say, here are the postures that you assume, here are the gestures that you make. You know, it's like a, 
an owner's manual or a user's manual for something that you purchase from, you know, Target. And, you know, we kind of joke about it. You, you do the red and say the black. In, in the, the missile book, the, the red, in red print, are the, they're called rubrics because they're in red. It's Latin for red. It's, now you, you say this standing or sitting. Or you have your hands out like this or like this. And, or you say this quietly or out loud. And the black are the words that you say. It's all given to you. And you can do it, but a minor bird can do it. Years ago, I visited the San Diego Zoo with some buddies of mine, and there was this bird. I, don't, I think it was a minor bird. It was some bird. And this is not a recording. This came right from the bird. That bird sat on its perch. I left my heart in San Francisco. Even a minor bird can say the black. But you know this. When whoever is the leader of worship, the priest or a deacon, let's say, when they plug into I understand the mind and heart that's behind these words, these gestures, these postures. When that leader of worship melds with, becomes one with that interior sentiment, that liturgical piety, the spirit of the liturgy, whoa, it takes off. It's an experience different. People note it. And even more so, when all those in the pews do likewise. How to worship. Related to Holy Mass, there are other means of faith formation that the Church recommends that, <coughs> excuse me, that any one of us can do on our own, as a family, at home, with or without a book. They are tools for faith formation. One is a daily examination of conscience. It's kind of like, you know, we begin Mass, acknowledge your sins, so as to prepare to celebrate these sacred mysteries. An examination of conscience. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Examination of conscience. I am blessed by God, by God's grace and mercy. Look, here's an example of it. There's an example of it. The presence of God, the activity of God, the strength, the wisdom, the goodness of God at work in my life today, every day, every moment of every day. Examination of conscience. Related to that, very powerful for faith formation, is a regular confession of sins to a priest. I think it is the most powerful means for faith formation. Even more so than receiving Holy Communion. It's possible for people to get up out of the pew, walk down the aisle, say, Amen, put the host in their mouth, and walk out the door, get in their car, and 
you know, beat the, beat the rush in the parking lot. It's not impossible to do that in the sacrament of reconciliation, but it's very rare. You can't go to confession without having examined your conscience, acknowledge sins, repent for failings, have the purpose of changing, the purpose of amendment, you've heard that phrase, the purpose of changing my life, and then standing in line to say those to a priest. Oh my gosh. That's one of the reasons why I became a priest. Because, I don't know if you knew this, but as priests, we can just stand in front of a mirror and say, I absolve you from your sins. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm dead serious. Not really. <laughs> I wish. And I maintain that the priest in, in the confessional does not have to say a word in response, except for, I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doesn't have to say a word, you know, sometimes there was one time in Rome, I went to this English confessor, and I confessed my sins, you know, wasn't nice to my neighbor, you know, forgot my evening prayers, you know, little things like that. And he went on and on with this, you know, fervorino, uh, this, this talk. It was close to a half an hour. <laughs> and I finally stopped him and I said, I'm sorry for interrupting, Father. Are you going to absolve me from my sins? <laughs> well, yes. Would you do that now, please? <laughs> and so he did and I left. And I don't remember a word of what he said, except for that was a lot of words. <coughs> I maintain the full benefit, instructive and formative benefit of the sacrament of reconciliation. It's already done. Doesn't have to say a word except for you're forgiven, go in peace, sin no more. Another instructive and formative thing that the church recommends that you can do on your own or with your family at home or wherever is the reading of scripture. Even if we just read one line of it a day and reflect upon it and respond to it in some way by our own prayer, it's kind of like conversation. So here's a, a, a sentence that Jesus says to us in the gospel. And we respond, I have no idea what you're trying to say to me. Oh, thank you very much. Isn't she sweet? <laughs> or, thank you for saying this to me. Or, I'm sorry that I'm not living that out in my life. Or, please help me to read, reflect, and respond. Related to this, to the reading and reflection on scripture, is praying the rosary. Do not repeat this. Shut the camera off right now. For <laughs> When we're praying the rosary, 
You could pray the Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, you know, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. It is not so significant what is said. Sometimes, you know, all the emphasis is on praying the words, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with me. No, that's a distraction from the true purpose. The rosary, that repetition, whether it's the Hail Mary or watermelon or whatever you want, the repetition is then, uh, and I'm not making this up, it's meant to prepare your mind and heart to contemplate the mysteries of the rosary. Not thinking about the words of the Hail Mary, but thinking about the mystery of the resurrection of the Lord, His ascension into heaven, the descent of the Holy... And we go on and on. It's a reflection, a meditation of Scripture. The last one I'll mention is the adoration of the Eucharist, which I'm sure they'll tell you back there in the Society of Peace. Right, so, so if I get that right, that, yep. Not meant to take away from the celebration of Holy Mass, but rather to prepare our mind and heart for it. My family lives in California, in my room, up in Dubuque. I have a picture of them. I look at that picture probably every day. It reminds me of them. It keeps the flame of love in my heart for them burning and prepares me for this week. I'm going home. I always go home for my mother's birthday. She'll be 89 this coming week. It would, it's not sufficient just to look at the photo. It's not even sufficient, once I get there, just to sit and look at my mom or <coughs> my sisters or their children, but to engage with them, the give and take. It's a holy exchange. It's, you know, the, the love is meant to, to bring us into closeness to union with. And adoration of the Eucharist I don't know how it works, but it does. It is mysterious, it is mystical, but it does have this effect on those who regularly engage in that devotion. It deepens love for Jesus. It deepens a desire to deeply celebrate the Holy Mass. It deepens a desire to imitate the Lord in His humility, in His forgiveness, and in His service. Seminarians, if you ask them, they will, you say, well, what, what was an influence on your vocation? What, what inspired it? What made you think about it? What made you Take the next step to respond, to get a hold of your pastor or the vocation director or whomever. And many of them will comment, I think it started in the devotion of adoration to the Holy Eucharist. 
How's that? I don't know. It's mysterious, it's mystical, but it does have that effect. And as I said, these can be done by anyone outside of church with or without the agency of a priest. One final tool for faith formation that again is part of what is essentially our faith practice already, so it's not like oh, I gotta go to this class or uh, you know, gotta carve out time for this program. <coughs> Excuse me. But another tool that is worthy of special mention is the practice of the works of mercy. Pope Francis just recently published a, a letter, rather lengthy letter, on our call to holiness in today's world. And he mentions two dangers, two errors with regard to the practice of our faith. One is the involvement in works of mercy without the practice of prayer and worship. You know, people who just like to roll up their sleeves and give food to the hungry and drink to the thirsty, which are great, but spend no time in daily prayer or Sunday worship. The other error that he points out are those who engage in prayer and worship without any involvement in the works of mercy. Catholics are a both-and people, not either-or. We engage in daily prayer and Sunday worship in order that our faith life, the life in Christ that we receive from baptism, will not only survive but thrive. We engage in prayer and worship in order to support a way of life. But we also engage in the works of mercy as the sign of the authenticity of our personal faith. It is the sign. You could spend all day in prayer. And if you walk right by somebody who is in need of one of the works of mercy and do nothing, say, not my job, don't want to get involved, then you could have just possibly wasted your whole day. There's no question about the primacy of our relationship to God and our worship of God. God we love first and most. But a relationship with God automatically and essentially includes a relationship with other people. It's kind of like you mentioned before, you marry this person and you automatically get his or her family as well. You know, the in-laws are the outliers, however you want to refer to them. St. Catherine of Siena, who is declared a doctor or teacher of the church, said this, that our neighbor is the way, the means to return gratuitous love to God. Gratuitous love means it's free. I don't owe you, you don't deserve it, but I'm gonna love you anyway. It's the way that God loves, 
I loved you first. I love you most. And we, for our part, are meant to respond with a like love. We're meant to respond with gratuitous love for God. But we can't do it. Because with regard to God, it is not a question that God does not deserve or we don't owe. In fact, God does deserve and we do owe. And so there we are. We're in a pickle. What do we do? This impasse, Catherine says, is resolved by our neighbor. This person could be a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, could be a stranger, could be an enemy. That person, most especially the enemy, is the means to return gratuitous love. Doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter whether the person is deserving, asks nicely, is aware of the cost, or is grateful. It doesn't matter. If I'm to love God, then the best way to do it, sure, prayer and worship, but the sign of an authentic love, of an authentic faith, is gratuitously loving a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, a stranger, and most especially an enemy. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what merit is there in that? The pagans do as much. Love your enemies. Which is to your credit, you know, because you came forward to your enemy and gave him throat lozenges. <laughs> and Jesus is very clear that this is the criterion upon which we will be judged. Not making this up. You just read Matthew 25. Whatever you do to somebody else, I take it personally, God says. And I think that those who do the works of mercy, it makes them more and more merciful. It's kind of like Holy Mass. It's instructive and formative. If we do the works of mercy, to do them just by doing them, it is instructive and formative. It's, it's possible, but it's hard to imagine engaging in the spiritual or corporal works of mercy in a selfish, ugly, unattractive way. If for no other reason, because they're motivated by love of God and neighbor. They are in themselves beautiful, those acts because of how selfless and other-centered they are. And so I think that the practice of them make people spiritually beautiful. So, in conclusion, yay! <laughs> if I were a pastor, take notes, Father Ken, <laughs> I would put my eggs into these baskets. Not in programs and classes, or even books for that matter. I would put my eggs in engaging whomever I needed to in order to enhance the experience of the Sunday Assembly for Holy Mass, 
promoting hospitality and, and careful about the selection of hymns and spending time preparing to preach a homily and teaching people how to worship. And I would put my eggs into promoting those prayer practices that nourish faith, but that can be done anywhere, everywhere, by everyone, with or without the agency, the ministry of a priest. And I would promote the works of mercy as an essential practice of our faith, the criterion. For these things, when you think about it, there's no competition for time or energy. I mean, we have to go to Mass anyway. We get to go to Mass anyway, I should say. Those prayer practices, they can be done as a family or alone, at home. I sometimes, one of my favorite prayer practices is referred to as Swimming in the mercies of God. It's, uh, I belong to the Schoenstatt movement, which is a Marian consecration spirituality, and the founder promotes this practice, prayer practice, swimming in the mercies of God, which I generally do as I'm stopped at a stoplight, for example, or driving down Highway 20, one of the most boring drives that you can <laughs> maybe have. And, in the Archdiocese of Dubuque, and upon which I have to drive numerous times, there in my car. Doesn't put demands on limited parish resources, whether they're financial or otherwise, and they are very effective. Amen. So, we have one minute for comments or questions. None? Okay, well then, you can stand up and stretch and we'll come back again at what time? 10.30. And it says Deacon Mark, but it's really me. <laughs>